Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is, I'm Pete Whittle. Now, my guest today is Konstantin Kissin, the comedian and indeed the social commentator. He has written for The Spectator, for The Independent, for Quillette, and indeed he has been on the BBC a number of times recently. You might know him because you watch his show uh, from another programme called Trigonometry, which he co-hosts. And indeed, he hit the headlines last year, international headlines, when he refused to sign what was called a behavioural agreement form before doing a comedy gig at a London college. Uh, welcome indeed, Constantine. It's great to see you here. Thanks so um, much for having me. It's a pleasure. I want to ask you first, you have got a show, or that you're, I think you're sort of trying out at the moment, aren't you? It's going to go to the Edinburgh Festival. Now, it's got this great title, All Well That Ends Well. What are the themes of this show? Well, it speaks for itself, doesn't it? It's really very much about the contract that I turned down, yeah. uh, which I'm using as an opportunity to look more broadly at what the situation is with free speech in, uh, in this country today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, I contrast it with coming from the Soviet Union, where I was born, I grew up, and my grandfather, who was exiled from the Soviet Union for saying something he wasn't supposed to say. Really? Uh, what, what, tell us about that. Actually. Well, in 79, he said that uh, the Soviet Union was wrong to invade Afghanistan. Uh, which was something that most people thought, but you weren't supposed yeah. to say. Yeah. Uh, then the parallels are interesting now, because in this country now we have people being persecuted and prosecuted for saying things that most people think, yeah. but aren't supposed to say. Uh, so he was arrested by the KGB. Uh, he was fired from his job. His wife was fired from her job. Both his children, that's my father and his uh, sister, they were kicked out of university. Um, and actually, the, my grandfather's biggest crime is when they searched his flat they found a radio that he used to listen to BBC World Service. And this was his biggest crime, mm -hmm. listening to the BBC. Good uh, can you imagine that? Uh, so uh, he was exiled from the Soviet Union. Eventually he came to this country. And uh, that's kind of how my story of coming here started. Uh, my parents sent me to boarding school because my grandfather was yeah. already here. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, so coming from a place where everybody was sensitive and worried about what they were yes. going to say. Yeah. I am starting to see a lot of parallels now in what we have in this country today. Yeah. So that's what the show is talking about. It's a, it's a comedy show, but it's also got that serious side to it as well. Uh, and you know, one of the th things that I found out in doing the research for it is, uh, um, let me ask you, last year in Russia, 400 people were arrested for things they said on social media. Right. right? Uh, obviously, this country is not like that. Uh, do you know how many people were arrested in this country last year? I think I would I would hazard that it 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 goes into the thousands. Three thousand three hundred people. Really? And no, whenever I I go around the country doing the previews of my show, no one knows this. Yeah, yeah. And people are being arrested and prosecuted and convicted of things that are absolutely ridiculous. Um, there's a, a, a young woman in uh, Liverpool who was arrested a year ago because she shared some lyrics from a rap song on her Instagram. Right. And the, the rap song contained the N-word. Yeah. And she was convicted of being a hate criminal, fined, tagged for a year. And it took her a year to win an appeal. During that year, she was a hate criminal. See, the problem is, it seems to me, with hate crime is that, and I think you've talked about this actually, Constantine, is that it is almost unique in that it doesn't require evidence. That's isn't, right. Isn't that right? That in fact, and also there's this odd thing, because obviously I'm on the London Assembly right, as well, and we, hate crime comes up a lot. Mm. It is entirely, so we, we could be talking now and someone else might just watch and th they can report it 
as a hate incident, mm. for example, if you said something. And then similarly, that other person could then go and tell somebody else who's not even watched, and it still has to go on as a hate crime incident statistic or something. Well, the interesting thing with that, the Count Dankula case, which you may yeah. know about and other people may know about, who was a Scottish yeah, YouTuber yeah. who made, you know, he made an edgy video. I, I thought it was quite funny, actually, but uh, a lot of people didn't. The police couldn't find anyone who was offended by it. So they couldn't prosecute yeah, him. Yeah. And they eventually took the video and started showing it to people who might be offended. And then eventually that's how they were able to secure a conviction. Yeah. It's crazy. But how do you turn this kind of material into a comedy routine? I mean, how, if, you, if that is the name of your show, how actually does one do that? I mean, how do you do it? Come and how see do you it. Make, how do you, you make have people to come laugh? And see it. <laughs> You'll have to come and see it. Okay. Uh, I mean, it, it, it seems to me that, it, you know, the audiences that you have might not necessarily be appreciative of that kind of approach immediately. Is that right, do you think? I think uh, a lot of the people who come to see the show know me and know who I am and what I'm about. So there's an element of that. There's also a lot of people who have no idea what I'm talking about. And because all of these things are quite new, yeah. and because you have an hour to kind of set your stall out to just show that you're not some evil, you know, right-wing monster or whatever, because yeah. I'm, I'm not right or left, I'm somewhere in the center. Right. Uh, you have an opportunity to be funny for a bit before you start talking about these serious things. Actually, I've always thought that that's the purpose of comedy. Yeah. Uh, the purpose of comedy is to bring people on a journey from where they are to, to a different place. Uh, that's one of my frustrations with the way a lot of comedy is done now, where it's just what you believe being regurgitated back to you. Yes. And I, I've never found that particularly enjoyable. Well, it's kind of boring. Yeah. It's as simple as that. I mean, I, you know, we were discussing earlier, in the 1980s, it was always Thatcher. Mm. You know, then it was Bush. You know, you just had to say the word, and basically then everyone would jeer or sneer or laugh or whatever. You had the audience on side. But I mean, there is this feeling, isn't there, that audiences now laugh almost just simply to show that they are on side politically, isn't that? You know, laughing on principle almost. Some comedy has now become what I call please clap comedy. Please clap. Please okay. clap. So it's, right, it's okay. me saying something in order that you clap because you agree with it, yeah. as opposed to because it actually is funny. Yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of politicians, I think all of those politicians that you named, they're perfectly uh, open for criticism oh, yeah. and for being yeah. laughed at. Yeah. But the issue you have now in, in our society now is if you make jokes about Boris Johnson or Theresa May, it's very easy, mm. uh, but as, as someone who's uh, from a Jewish background, mm. talking about anti-Semitism and labor, people don't react in the same way at all, even though the allegations are equally serious and equally legitimate, yeah. as we now know. How do they react? Uh, very much like you're, uh, you're talking about a very sacred figure. If you, make fun about, if you make fun of or make jokes about Jeremy Corbyn, the reaction seems to be is like this person shouldn't be laughed at yeah, yeah, very yeah. often. Um, so I think there is a, there's a bit of a double standard there, mm. which, which troubles me in comedy, but it troubles me more, more broadly in society. Mm. We don't treat uh, the two sides of the political spectrum in, in anything like the same way. You mentioned there at the beginning that, you know, you're drawing on what happened last year. I mean, just to, you know, people I'm sure are very familiar with it, but you were asked to sign some 
form and I've, there's a list of all the things you were they were asking you not to be yes it went on and on didn't it what was it now it was so they, they said that they have a zero tolerance policy on racism sexism classism ageism ableism homophobia biphobia transphobia xenophobia <laughs> islamophobia anti-religion and anti-atheism so you're asking me how to do comedy you're laughing already right uh, and it also by the way said that all jokes must be respectful and kind um, which I don't know. I mean, it's a comedy show. It's not the Green Party conference where someone's going to burst into tears because the falafel wrap is not 100% vegan. Do you know? It's, <laughs> yes, yeah. it, it, it's, it's insanity. Um, and of course, if it had just been that incident, I don't think I would have made a, any big deal out of it. But yeah, I think yeah. as you and I both know, we are now living in a society where institutions like universities, they're no longer about learning. They're about indoctrination. They're about spreading a particular ideology. Uh, among young people. You um, went to university here, did you? I went to University of Edinburgh. Yeah. Yeah. So what was it like when you were there? Uh, I don't remember anything like this. It was 15 years ago that I was right, at right. university. And uh, I don't remember this being the issue at all. I, I remember just going to university and learning stuff. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, Not all of it was useful, but uh, but it was still, you, you were there to learn. There was, no, there was no sense that you were being indoctrinated with the, all this... Um, far left ideology which is I think is what's happening now so there were no the, the safe spaces didn't exist then did no, they not no, 15 no. years ago no, no, I no, mean no, universities not. have always been pretty left yes but it's this tightening of the whole idea of free speech that's that's what is that is what is different now I think isn't it? well but even when you say they've always been pretty left that's entirely accurate mm. but the extent to which they've been left is not nearly as as big, that gap is not nearly as big 40 years ago as it is now uh, so I think Jonathan Haidt has done some research mm. on this and what he showed is in the 60s the ratio of conservatives to liberals at universities was about 1 to 2. Now it's about 1 to 10. Mm, mm. Right? So that has changed dramatically which explains why these far left ideas are far more accepted now. I think, I mean, I was at a very left wing university at Kent mm. back in the 80s, very, very left wing. Uh, but I think what's, what's changed maybe, Constantine, is that then it was a question of like, no platforming various Tory MPs that would come down, right? Mm. It's a very simple stuff. We didn't have identity politics. Mm. What you're talking about, like that, with that agreement they wanted you to sign, that was entirely about identity politics, wasn't mm. it? That is, that's the form of attack now in which the yeah. left, is, is left is taking, isn't it? Well, identity politics is this ingenious idea that the best way to stop racism, sexism and homophobia is to judge people on their race, their sex and, <laughs> and their sexual orientation. You couldn't make it up. I mean, you know, Martin Luther King was talking about his children. He wanted his children to be judged on the content of their character. Yeah, yeah. And now we are running around judging each other, not on the content of our character but yeah. on the color of our skin it is absolutely insane when you didn't sign this mm. agreement what was the fall i mean did you get support from the comedy fraternity for want of a better word fraternity no i got support from a, a, a lot of established comedians right uh, but the broader comedy industry was massively against what i did mm. actually i got a, a, a lot of criticism uh, and backlash for it i had one comedian call me a nazi uh, on the radio uh, which was great for me because I've now got a niche. <laughs> I'm the only Jewish Nazi comedian in the world. You actually are your Jewish comedian of the year, aren't you? Uh, yeah, I won a, a competition called Jewish a New Comedian of the Year. Right. Um, so yes, I, I mean, uh, I think I had a lot of support. I don't want to. I don't want to. Uh, 
be uncharitable. I did get a lot of support from very well-known people, Simon Evans, John Cleese, uh, Omid Jalili. I, I could go on. There were a lot of people who were very supportive. Um, and a lot of them actually were supportive privately but didn't feel comfortable mm. defending me publicly, which tells you a lot. Mm-hmm. as well yes, I think exactly. yeah, yeah. Um, but a, a lot of people in the comedy industry thought that I was I was letting the team down that what we need now is more wokeness in comedy we need to be quote socially conscious we need to make sure there's no punching down ever and punching down is this idea that you're making fun of people who are less powerful exactly yeah, uh, yeah. which I find is a very interesting concept in general because if you look at I voted remain on the referendum yeah yeah um, but if you look at the kind of comedy that, that has been very popular since 2016, uh, it's perfectly normal for a straight, very wealthy, middle-class young man to be on stage with a microphone mocking Doris from Huddersfield for, as being thick and racist for mm-hmm. voting Brexit. I don't see how that's not punching down. Mm-hmm. And yet within the comedy establishment that is seen as a perfectly legitimate joke oh, of course yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I, I think a lot of these concepts have just been weaponized by a certain sliver of society who want to advance their ideology also I, I, we had Andrew Doyle on a while mm. ago and he said that uh, he was indefinitely punching up mm. with uh, Titania McGrath yes you know she's a upper upper middle class very privileged you know fake victim um, so I think obviously that would that would follow but it's interesting on that point, Peter, that uh, a lot of research now shows that the two whitest groups in society yeah. are the far right, so the, white, the real white nationalists, yeah. and the far left. <laughs> so all these woke people, they're actually mostly middle class yeah. white vegans from Islington. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's who we're talking about. So this idea that these minority groups that are, are fighting their oppression is not. It's people who are virtue signaling on Twitter. That's mostly who it is. Before we leave this thing about this agreement, mm. you know, okay, so, so you had that from, from comics, but what about the public? What about audiences in the public? Were they supportive of you? Were they? Overwhelmingly. Yeah. This is the interesting thing about the divide in our country now between a small elite who control the media, who control yeah. the way these debates go on, and the public. The public are fed up of political correctness. They're fed up of uh, these restrictions around what we can and can't say. And I, by, I, by the way, I don't argue that I can't say what I think. I, I'm a comedian, I'm on stage every night, of course I can say what I think. But a lot of people feel in Britain today, and I got thousands of messages when I turned down that contract, like they are not quite sure what they can and can't yeah, say. Yeah. And what we see now is, you know, if you retweet a limerick that's considered transphobic, Mm. The police will be on the phone or at your door telling you to check your thinking. This is a real case mm-hmm. that happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, a man was fired from his job in Asda only last week mm. for sharing a Billy Connolly routine mm. on his Facebook. A lot of people are quite rightly, in my opinion, concerned that if they say the wrong thing at the wrong place and the wrong time, they will be punished for it. And that is because they will be. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I think what it means is that people, because people aren't sure what they can and cannot mm. say, they just basically take the safe route and don't say anything. Yeah. I mean, that, that is, that's, the, that's the thing that's happening. We're talking about comedy, we're talking about, you know, what you can and cannot say. Why is it, do you think, that the onus now is in, seems to be entirely on comedy in this area? I mean, or rather, should I say, this is the flashpoint in that, you know, we've got literature, we've got the theatre, we've got TV drama, we've got all the rest of it. You don't generally get this anymore with those areas. Why do you think that is? Why is it comedy now? 
I think uh, there are a number of reasons for that. One of those is comedy has always been this transgressive space. When you go to comedy, you expect people to be challenging the norm, to mm -hmm. be saying things that are slightly outside of the edge of what you might say in a conversation like this or mm -hmm. what you might say in, in, in private. So, so it's always been this transgressive space. So when you have these increasing restrictions on what you can and can't say, that is a natural clash. Right. The other thing is comedians are naturally, a lot of us are contrarians by nature. Yeah, yeah. So we don't like being told what to do. We don't like having restrictions imposed on what we do. Yeah. Uh, and also, you know, one of the things about comedy is if you want to create good comedy, you sometimes have to experiment and sometimes that means you will go over the line yeah. and you'll say something that you shouldn't have said. But the only way that you know that is, is that you've said it and you've seen the audience's reaction. Yeah. And so we need the space to be able to be creative and to experiment as well. Uh, but I think that the, the biggest thing is that comedians, we, are, we use lies to tell the truth. That is our job, in mm -hmm. a sense. Uh, if, you, if you think of your favorite comedy routine that you've ever seen, there will be something in that that reveals a fundamental truth about whether that's you know, men and women, or humanity, or the human condition, or politics, or a particular politician, whatever it might be. It reveals the truth, even, the, even if the story that you, that you were told isn't necessarily true. That is our job. So in some ways, we are trying to pursue what, what the truth is. And we increasingly now live in a society where truth is not important. Mm. Feelings are much more important than what's true. So it's, it's, on all those levels, it's a natural clash yeah. between comedy and this woke dogma that we have now. Well, how does this affect how you would be employed? I mean, for example, have the BBC come calling? I mean, I know you've been on news shows mm. and you've been on breakfast TV and things like that. But, you know, when it comes to BBC panel shows and all that, not that you care, hmm. but, but would you get asked onto those? Have you been on those? I, I think it would be presumptuous of me to, to say that I am, you know, I'm good enough a comedian to be on there. I think there are plenty of comedians who deserve to be on there mm. and aren't on there for not political mm. reasons. Mm. Uh, I think that if you look at uh, how, who they choose to be on those, those panels, I think it's quite clear that it's, it's driven by a certain ideology. First and foremost, it's about diversity right now. Mm. So it's about making sure that you have all the boxes ticked. Yep. Um, and that's not to say that the comics who are on there aren't good, uh, but though that is the priority. And I know this for having been on TV panels and discussions all the time. This is a huge priority right now. And the one, the one point I would make is diversity is great. I think it's important that people are represented. Uh, or rather people are given the opportunity to mm. succeed if they're good enough. I think that's great. I don't have a problem with that. What I have a problem with is there's a complete lack of ideological diversity. So you don't have anyone on those shows other than maybe Jeff Norcott, who's the only right-leaning comedian that's ever been on TV in the last 10 years, as far as I can tell. Is he the one on the, the, the is it the MASH report? Yes, he's on there. And Jeff is a brilliant comedian mm -hmm. and he, he richly deserves to be on there. But he is like the token Tory. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I think the representation of people with different ideas is very, very limited. Mm. Uh, so I, I, I honestly don't know um, what, what will happen. Uh, all, all I can do is uh, do my shows, perform, and, and then see what comes out of it. You, you actually took the BBC to task quite recently. Mm. I mean, actually to their face, well done. But this was about, I think this was when you were talking about the Joe Brand case, you know, where she said about throwing uh, battery acid or mm. something. or um, but I think you made this point, didn't you, about the lack of diversity in their production team. I mean, anyone who's been near the BBC knows that's entirely true. Mm. 
But, um, you know, it's essentially, there's no getting away from it, surely, with the BBC. No, I don't think there is. I think they need to work a lot harder yeah. uh, on making sure that they have a, a plurality of voices mm -hmm. in, in the production rooms, on, on sets, etc. I think it's very dominated by one strand of ideology. And it's not healthy for our country because uh, you will know this from doing your show. And I know this from doing trigonometry with Francis Foster. We get so many messages from people saying, look, I used to watch the BBC religiously yeah, yeah, yeah. 10 years ago. I can't watch it anymore. And I think that's actually, it's a tragedy. If we come back to the beginning and my grandfather being persecuted yeah, in Russia yeah. for listening to the BBC, the BBC can be an institution that is incredibly useful and brings society together. Yes. But if it's dominated only by one group of people who try to force their ideology down people's throats, yeah. what you end up with is actually you divide society and you push people away. Yes. And I think that's very unhealthy. Is your grandfather still with us? Is he, is he no, he passed away a few years ago. He did, yes. Yeah. Uh, did he ever talk about what Britain was like now compared to when he came? I mean, did he ever comment on that? Did he? I think my grandfather, he was so grateful to be here and he loved this country so much yes. and it matched so well who he was as a person, yeah. someone who believed that you should say what you think yeah. and you should have the opportunity to do that. Uh, that I don't think he ever really lamented how things changed and also mm. of course he was of an older generation and the people he spent time with were mm. of his generation so he didn't really see this trend but I think he'd be horrified by what's happening now if he was still alive and him and I were talking about it. Well, how old were you actually therefore when you, you came here? I was 13. You're 13? I was 13. So you were educated obviously partly in Russia. I mean, I, I, I'm interested to know, you know, it's a very broad question but is there any sort of meeting point between the British sense of humour as it is and the Russian sense of humour? I mean, are there any, are there any similarities? Are there? Uh, probably not. No. Probably not. Uh, it's funny because uh, all of none of my family r really speak English. My parents still live in Russia, uh, and when I if they always ask me like, "Can you send us a, a video of you yeah. performing?" and they don't get any of it because it's <laughs> tailored to the British audience. Yeah, yeah. And anyone who's ever tried to tell a Russian joke to a British person knows that it's completely pointless as well. So there's not much uh, crossover there. I, I remember that you, you were on the BBC talking about these rather sort of uh, caustic tweets put mm -hmm. out by the Russian embassy yeah. uh, some time ago. Which um, so This was during the uh, Salisbury stuff. Yes. Yeah, I think you were saying that the Russians just less squeamish, maybe. Yeah, certainly less squeamish, less politically is it, correct. Is it actually, it's not that hard to be less squeamish than the, than the British at the moment. I mean, I think we're hugely squeamish, aren't we, now yeah. with, uh, with, with humour. Yeah, well, it's interesting that um, in Russia, you know, humour was always a way to deal with the fact that you were living in a really bad place. Mm. Mm. And so the humour tended to be very dark because it's if you speak to police officers or firefighters, their humour tends to be very dark as well because they're using it as a way of coping with very serious and difficult things. Sort of gallows humour. Right? Exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. So Russian humour tends to be quite dark as well, Right. for that reason. You, uh, you also, you, you, you commented on Joe Bram, you also uh, defended John Cleese, I think, didn't mm. you? And then he, in turn, defended you, I believe, didn't he? Well, he defended me first, actually. Oh, he defended you first? Yes, right, okay. so uh, when I was called a Nazi by this mental woman on the radio, he came out and said that he saluted me 
right uh, which was nice of him until i remembered the one salute that he's known <laughs> yes, for yes. <laughs> <laughs> thanks john um, but actually yes a few weeks ago he got into trouble uh, for saying that London was not really an English city that's anymore. Right, right. Uh, and I'm not sure that's true, but I certainly think it's it's a lot less English. And I thought that was a, a reasonable point to go and make. And, and of course, people called him racist. People called him a hypocrite as well, because he lives in Nevis now, mm -hmm. uh, which is an island in the Caribbean. Um, and I can see why people might say he's a hypocrite talking about a lot. But how does that make him racist? I mean, he, that, how does that make him racist? Like, he, he hates black people so much, he moved to their country. Yeah, no, I think, <laughs> from what I can see, I mean, first of all, I mean, don't you think that when people get so angry about this mm. kind of thing, it is a bit, you know, there's no need to be so angry. It's, it's almost like somehow they've hit a nerve. They're, they're, and then basically, you you know, people are sort of feeling, maybe he's got a point, I've got to make sure that That's it a, doesn't happen. You hit the nail on the head. The reason people get angry and emotional about these things, I've noticed that whenever this happens, whenever there's a massive outrage, it's always because there's an, a grain of truth to what the person has said. Mm. And it's a grain of truth that resides in this area of things that must not be discussed. Mm -hmm. You know, whether that's the ideology of diversity, whether it's wokeness, whether it's intersectionality, mm -hmm. whether it's the impact of immigration on Britain, mm -hmm. which is a perfectly legitimate mm -hmm. conversation. Mm -hmm. I say this as an immigrant. There's nothing wrong with acknowledging that immigration brings positives and negatives that maybe, you know, some some levels of immigration in a short period of time have a negative impact that's not conducive to a healthy, integrated, yep. coherent society. Mm -hmm. Those are perfectly legitimate arguments to have. And uh, I, I, I was curious during the Brexit referendum campaign, and I, as I said, I voted Remain, mm -hmm. uh, that Nigel Farage said this thing about how he was on a train and he noticed that nobody was speaking English. Yeah, yeah. And when he pointed this out, he was treated as some kind of racist xenophobe. That's a perfectly legitimate observation mm. to make. Mm. I mean, I'm Russian, my wife and I speak Russian sometimes, mm. sometimes mm. we speak English to each other, but we live in Britain. The idea that we should have a common language, <laughs> that's not racist, that's not xenophobic, that, that's a perfectly legitimate point. Well, the funny thing is, is that with that, but particularly on the language point, we should, let's face it, language is a glue that holds everyone together. You've got to be able to understand each other. Um, you know, that sort of comes and goes. It's suddenly become mainstream to say, yes, I think people should learn English. It, it did, it, you know, with Labour, it became mm. mainstream for a while, and now it seems to have receded again. Mm. I, I think it's interesting, with that Farage comment, for example, mm. you're quite right. When you said people like went crazy and called him a xenophobe, who went crazy and called him a xenophobe? I mean, essentially, it is the chattering class and, and the media, is it yeah. not? Yeah, it's interesting that uh, every time I go on Good Morning Britain, which is a few times now to defend various yeah. things, they always turn off the comments on their YouTube videos. Do they really? Yeah, oh. uh, and the like to dislike ratio always tells you why. Because the vast majority of ordinary people are yeah. not with this chattering elite that you're yeah. talking about. Yeah. Yeah. The vast majority of ordinary people in this country are sensible, down-to-earth, reasonable people who see things for what they are and they see through these for racism, for this, for that. Um, and I think that's, it's telling that the, the mainstream media is becoming increasingly disconnected from the public. Uh, and that's why this show and trigonometry yeah, are so yeah, important. Yeah. That's why you, I'm, I'm glad you've had me on the show because I think what we're doing is the alternative. Mm -hmm. Like the alternative comedy of the 80s was the alternative to, to the bad comedy that had come before. The new media is a space where genuine conversations can be had. Uh, absolutely. Does it also? I remember that when we had Alistair Williams on, he was looking to the internet and to YouTube, mm. actually for his living. Yeah. I mean, essentially, you know, 
if you like my material, if you like my stuff, please, you know, donate. Yeah. That's going to be a way forward for a lot of people, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I, I think what we are now reaching is a point where the mainstream media are not doing their job. Yeah. And uh, people like us who are creating an alternative will, will reap the rewards of that. Yeah. Uh, and for comedy as well, I mean, when I go and preview my show at the moment or in Edinburgh, I've already sold quite a few tickets for my oh, Edinburgh right. show oh, simply right. because people know who I am, they know yeah, what I do. Yeah. Uh, and I think that will definitely be the way forward. That'll definitely be the way forward. Now, what are the dates for the show then on, before we leave? What are, what are the dates for the show? So it's all well that ends well. It's right. a 7 p.m. Uh, every day in August, except uh, the 13th or 14th, I think, uh, at the Gilded Balloon. Gilded Balloon. Uh, and it's from the 31st of July until the 26th of August. Uh, Right, is this your first time in Edinburgh? This is my Edinburgh debut, yeah. Oh, I, really? I've been there before for right. uh, to do shorter shows and stuff like that, but it's my full hour debut. Well, look, all the sorry, break a leg. All the very, very best. Constantine, thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Um, thanks for watching. Uh, see you next time on so What You're Saying Is. Thank you. <laughs>